The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of digital media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustan Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Formed Book Club. We continue to discuss the drama of Atheist Unison by Father Henri de Bach under the able leadership of Joseph Pierce with his acolytes, myself, Father Fessio, and Vivian Dudrow, we left off at the top of page 95, the section called Deeper Immersion in Existence, in quotes, which is a reference to Kierkegaard. So, Joseph, take it away. I will leave, but I'm going to hope for help, because actually I bound this, this these comparisons between Nietzsche and Kierkegaard over the following pages um, tough. Um, so I, I'm hoping that the more philosophically trained minds uh, of my two acolytes will, will come to my assistance here. Vivian and I like the government. We're here to help. Thank, <laughs> thank you. I, I like that. I like that. Yes. You're like the government. Yeah. You know, you, you've left me speechless, which the government often does. Um, <laughs> on page 95, towards the bottom here, uh, this is from Nietzsche. Uh, and it refers to Kierkegaard's language as masked. Someone else says that. But then this subject of masks, covering every profound mind, there is a mask that grows and develops continuously, thanks to the invariably false, that is to say shallow, construction put upon every one of its owner's words, his movements, the least sign of life that he gives. And this is from Beyond Good and Evil, perhaps appropriately here. What I find intriguing here, I mean, I read a biography for Ignatius Press called The Unmasking of Oscar Wilde. And Wilde sort of was a master of disguise and disguising himself, basically, from everybody else. And, you know, trying to understand the man, it means you've got to try to remove the masks that conceal who he is. And also maybe distinguish between those masks that conceal from those masks that reveal. The Eucharist is, is a mask that revealed. It allows us a penetration beyond what we'd be able to, to achieve otherwise, although it's also a mask that consoles. So here, it seems to me, I'm trying to grapple with it. This is Nietzschean arrogance, and presumably if it's meant universally, as a, as a doesn't believe in truth, but something we should believe, um, then uh, this presumably applies to Nietzsche as well. In other words, that all of us are self-deceiving, uh, because we are not able to see a truth which probably doesn't exist anyway. Uh, and therefore, we, we experience reality subjectively. Uh, and, uh, and insofar as it's subjective, it is invariably false, to use his language. This mask uh, grows. And it's, a, it's what the growth is like... <laughs> Something sort of something uh, pathological. It's something which is which um, separates us from whatever is real, if anything is. All of us, basically, it seems to me, are condemned to a radical separation from that which is, because of our inability to do anything but project our own shallowness 
onto it. I don't know if that's what, if I've understood what Nietzsche's saying there, but that is what he's saying. Then all that we can look forward to is alienation from from everything, including ultimately ourselves. I think you're right. That is the existential phenomenon that Nietzsche discovers and can't find a solution to it and ends up really stuck in alienation from himself, his fellow man, from God, from reality, because if everything is just a subjective experience, how do you know what's true? How do you know what's not true? He completely takes the basement out of any kind of notion of objective truth, objective reality, objective right and wrong. So where does that leave you? Yeah, it, seems that, it seems that the only thing to save you from nihilistic despair and the suicide, which would be the logical consequence, is, is self-empowerment. You know, I've just got I've got to experience reality, whatever it is, even though I don't don't can't know what it is, by empowering myself, right? Uh, just by basically kicking everybody else out the way to make myself the most powerful, whatever myself is <laughs> that I can make myself. You know, um, it seems that, the, that we end up exactly with the Pride movement and Pride Month that we have now, uh, if we follow this to its logical conclusion. Let me see if I understand, because I may not. So, uh, is it is it a question of where, on one hand, you can have people who don't reveal all of themselves because they're ashamed or whatever, or just because they're interior they're personal and you don't so you don't show everything to everybody. So, in that sense, there's a mask, there's a filter. We don't show our true selves to people. That's one thing. Or there's a mask where we actually we are deluded ourselves into thinking that's who we are? Or... I think that they're distinct things, Father. The first is not Nietzschean. The first is just the, the way that we experience reality because of our own, because of the real distance that, that separates us from the fullness of objectivity. So there, there is an engagement with it, but there's a limitation to our ability to engage fully. So I think that's one thing. But Nietzschean is, is the latter. The Nietzsche is basically saying that, that because of our own you know, he used the word shallowness, uh, in, in, invariable falseness, falsity, um, that basically we are, because of what we are, I, I, I don't even think we can use the word who, perhaps, um, but we are, because of what we are, um, radically at variance with what is, to such a degree that we have a huge outgrowth of artificiality, of accretion between us and what is, which means there's this, there's this, uh, uh, this radical separation of us from it. Uh, and in consequence, we have nothing but us knowing that the us that we have is pathetic. Right. And, and you know, it's interesting how de Lubach writes really with a great deal of compassion, I think, toward both of these men. I mean, uh, you know, when he says both of them passionate readers of, on 96, both of them, First of all, he's saying Kierkegaard and Nietzsche have a lot in common. That's his starting point on page right. 95. That's right. And Which is it, itself intriguing, right? It gets yes. us thinking, right? Yes. And so so he's talking about now the mask of, of, of Nietzsche because Nietzsche knows that if you're just making it up, then nothing's true. So you're a fraud in that sense, right? So um so so then but then he starts to show these comparisons between the two men, both of them passionate readers of Schopenhauer. Well, what did Schopenhauer say? The universe is not rational. So good luck trying to find truth or make sense of things or whatever. 
that's a failed project. And then both are, um, uh, you know, both are tragic and lonely heroes. That's a very sympathetic thing to say about two men. Um, this harshness toward oneself, the only road to freedom. So now you're locked in yourself, beating yourself up. I mean, it's kind of pathetic. Both of them fighting for a cause. Uh, they oppose the increasingly professorial philosophy. Okay, so they're both, um, philosophy has become this thing in the academy, uh, lo lose, having lost its way into extreme rationalism, you know, everything being picked apart to the point that nothing means anything anymore. They're both, Nietzsche and Kierkegaard are both against that. They're both fighting against the established churches in Germany, the established state churches. In uh, Nietzsche's case, the Lutheran church. His father was a Lutheran minister. Nietzsche went to Lutheran seminary. And, you know, whatever his experiences might have been, he's fighting against an official Christianity that has been gutted of any real Christianity. And in Kierkegaard's case, it's the Danish state church. So he, here's uh, de Lubac, like, comparing these two men, what it is that they're reacting to, what it is that they're fighting against. And it's... Uh, they're both struggling against Hegelianism as a rational system and a historicist way, historicist way of thought. That's on 97. Mm. And uh, this, this quote on the bottom of 98, where uh, that's opened up a little bit more uh, what uh, Nietzsche is fighting against in Hegel. I mean, this could have been written about COVID. This, uh, the power of history, unconcealed admiration for success, the idolatrous worship of facts, um, whatever those are, uh, you know, uh, the power of history, a mechanical gesture of approval for every kind of power, be it government or public opinion or majority. I mean, this is Nietzsche talking, but de Lubac is trying to position both of these men as in a way prophetically uh, exposing what's wrong with the intellectual paradigm that they're living in. And the sentence just after what you quoted, this is Kierkegaard in his uh, postscript, they will jerk their limbs according to whatever rhythm authority, in quotes, adopts for pulling the strings. Right. So wait, is that Kierkegaard or? Kierkegaard. My mistake. I started that quote, oh. that long extract saying it was Nietzsche. It was Kierkegaard. But it might have been Nietzsche because Nietzsche opposed the same thing. So now you've got these men fighting against the same things. But what's their solution? Where's the resolution for them? Well, the solution for Kierkegaard is entitled to the section called Deeper Immersion in Existence, with which the Lubach will conclude the chapter. Yes. And I want to just step back for a second here and say that, as I think we mentioned in a previous uh, episode here, session, that the book is not written so much as, as a one book planned out and written from beginning to end. It's rather a series of important essays mm -hmm. that de Lubach wrote during the war years, which have the, the, a common theme, uh, but it's like, you're looking at it from different perspectives. So here, you know, we've seen Nietzsche. Now we're going to see Kierkegaard compared to Nietzsche. And as you said, Vivian, uh, he, he sees both what's common to them and also even where they diverge, perhaps, from what, what would be a deeper truth, we can learn from them. That's right. Well, no, I'm just 
thinking that you know what we see here is is the whole sort of structure for like intellectual history. I sound like an, an Hegelian, forgive me. Um, <laughs> the, 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 well, history the, exists, the, okay. The, the intellectual history is a reaction against what's come before it, which is almost always an overreaction, right? So uh, the, you don't react against something with balance and restraint. You overreact against it, saying that's wrong, and then you put something in its place which goes too far in the other direction. And that this sort of oscillation between extremes. So here we have the, you know, the rationalism, which reduces things ultimately to mechanics, right, mechanical mm -hmm. process. And then you have reaction against that, which is basically there's no such thing as anything, right, which is, which, which is the Nietzschean uh, overreaction. But I do think Nietzsche presents us with a deeper challenge because he doesn't just react against Hegel. He reacts against Plato. You know, that basically the problem is reason itself. It's actually much more radical, and we, we have to uh, confront and affront that as well. And to loop back, I'm going to make that point later on in the chapter, uh, which we'll go into. Well, so here are these two men reacting to the same things, the intellectual uh, milieu that they're in, the official church, the gutted Christianity. Because once the church becomes official like this, it leads to problems. Uh, and so they're both reacting to that, but they both end up in very different places, right? Because as you just pointed out, Joseph, Hegel, uh, um, Nietzsche has this kind of radical distrust of reason completely, which it doesn't, it doesn't surprise us that he goes mad. I mean, if you're going to question your very ability to reason at all, uh, you're going to end up in deep water. But Kierkegaard also has a distrust of reason, as we'll see. But he ends up going deeper into faith as a result. It, Nietzsche runs from the Christian faith. Kierkegaard ends up going deeper into the Christian faith. And as we see at the end of this chapter, I mean, maybe I'm put, jumping too fast, but he well, actually... I, I, you can't go to the end, because I have much more to say, but I do want to, I do want to go back to... to well, well, let Vivian finish here. The fact that he starts... I was about to say that, but please, Vivian, follow your train of thought. Just, just that he starts approaching even the Catholic faith. Uh, I had no idea that about Kierkegaard. I know very little about Kierkegaard, but I certainly did not know that. Okay, but on page one away to the top, I'm jumping ahead, okay. we'll come back. Yeah, 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 or not. Uh, no, we will, because I got things before that, oh, too. Oh, okay. In order to give a fair hearing to this new and powerful echo of the, this is perfect, of the credo cui absurdum, that's Tertullian, who says, I believe because it's absurd. <laughs> you know, don't try and think it out. Don't try and make speculation. Don't make it a, obviously speculation. You believe. Uh, we must take up the concrete existential position which Kierkegaard is doing his best to lead us. And that's good. But, he, he, you know, De Lubach here is saying, there's, we can learn from Nietzsche, we can learn from Kierkegaard, yes. but as Joseph said, it, they go too far in the swing of the pendulum. We have to, you know, recognize that excess. But and, both men, interestingly enough, the reason why Kierkegaard could uh, echo this statement, believe because it's absurd, both men are trying to reclaim the mystery of things. These people who think they can dissect it and break it into parts, and now they understand it, and now they can explain it all to you, and just robbing the faith of its power and That's mystery right. and transcendence into something that we now... But it's not absurd. No, That's no, no, it's, it's like, not absurd. That's the whole point. I was about to say that, Father. You, 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 you jumped, you jumped I shot, right I shot you down. 
Yeah. You jump, no, you jump my gun, which is fine. Um, it's it's but, not but, absurd, yeah. but it's meant to shock. It, it, it's, yeah. We know our faith isn't absurd, but we also know that it's paradoxical, that it's mysterious. Right, but there's a difference between paradox and absurdity. And, you know, because we, 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 we do believe yeah. in the sort of marriage of faith, faith and reason. So we don't believe because something's absurd. That would be absurd. Right, of course. But we do believe that we do believe in something which we can't, can't contain. Correct. Right? That's the point. Something which, which transcends our ability to contain it. We'll return to the Forum Book Club with Father Joseph Fessio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to the Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce. That's right. And, and so that's what they are fighting against the intellectualization of the faith, the historical criticism, the analysis the, that got so far removed from the lived Christian experience of Christ. It had nothing to do with that, actually. And Kierkegaard's trying to somehow reclaim that in his own convoluted way, whereas Nietzsche's just simply rejecting it entirely, rejecting Christ entirely. They're reacting to the same thing, but they're reacting in opposite ways. Yeah, and they're both beginning, I would suggest, from positions of being lost. Their cultural experience of, of life and of, and of uh, religion and of philosophy is from, is from a perspective of radical disillusionment with the Enlightenment. 
Um, yes. But yet, having no real connection with scholasticism. So they start in the wrong place, and, and, and you know, Nietzsche sort of wanders off further and further away, and Kierkegaard sort of wanders in the right direction. That's that's the way I would sort of metaphorically try to yeah. you know, yes. describe it. Yeah. I want to go to page 103. There's nothing before that. You have a lot of online. Oh, don't bother with me. Just do your thing. I, I do want to go don't back. Don't look. I do want to go back <laughs> You know, when I didn't want to, yeah. go I didn't want to go back to 97 if I can, because I want yeah, to discuss. You, you, no, I can, but you may. <laughs> um, because, um, yeah, I want, to, I want to read this quote from Nietzsche, because I think it's interesting. Um, so bottom of page 97, above the footnotes, having distinguished between the idea of Christianity and its manifold and common appearances, so the, 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 the separation of the idea from the appearance, one comes to believe that this idea takes a mischievous pleasure in manifesting itself in purer and purer forms, and finally chooses its most translucid form in the brain of the present theologus liberalis vulgaris. Um, but when he, he, when he hears these purer Christianities passing judgment on the earlier Christianities, which were impure, the impartial listener often has the impression that Christianity does not enter into it at all. Right, and it exactly. To, it seems to me that he's completely misunderstood because the idea of Christianity, in, in, in a platonic sense, right, the, the substance, the essence of it, is Jesus Christ. It's the incarnate God, right? And so it's not you know, this sort of thing which is a figment of, of the real anyway, which then we misunderstand. That's very Nietzschean, right? The idea doesn't exist. And then we misunderstand the non-existent idea. But the point is, you've got to begin with the fact that the idea of Christianity is Jesus Christ. No, you have to begin with Jesus Christ. And as soon as people start talking about ideas, I don't equate the idea of Jesus Christ with Jesus Christ. Yeah, He's I, was objecting word, to, I was using the word idea in a platonic sense, not in I a know, but the, but, no. but the platonic sense that then got stretched beyond so that now people are talking about their concepts of God. They're not talking about God. They're talking about their concepts of God. And this is what's happening in the academy, in the schools of theology, in the, so, you know, I'm not interested in your concept of God. I'm interested in God. Yeah. Perhaps I should have clarified, not the idea uh, of Christianity is Christ. The idea is Christ in the, in the platonic form. Now, of course, you know, it becomes absolutely, it becomes incarnate, right? Something we can touch and feel and sense. Um, that's, but that's, that's, that's not the Christianity that he was experiencing. That wasn't the Christianity that Kierkegaard, because of being in these official no, I churches. Agree. Yeah. I agree. That's exactly what I'm saying. There's a radical yeah. disconnect. That's right. right? That's right. Between the Christ, the Christ who is, and, yes. the, and their understanding of this thing which doesn't exist. I mean, that, that's the radical disconnect, right? That's right. I want to parenthetically insert a pet peeve of mine, which is related to this idea of the idea of Christ, opposed to Christ himself. Right. You know, uh, even pious nuns will say, we, we have to have a relation with the person of Jesus. And I say, what are you talking about? I mean, I don't have a relation with the person of Vivian, but with Vivian, right? So even to say the person of? It's an, it's, that's, that's it's an a, abstraction. I, it, yeah, it's one step. And, and the platonic... You know, let's face it, even Aristotle tried to correct Plato on the inversion of the abstraction of the thing versus the real thing. Because 
in in the Platonic ideal, there's this sense that the ideal kind of exists is the real is the real thing, and the real thing is, is a shadow. shadow of that thing. And Aristotle said, no, it's the other way around. It's the pencil, not. And then we have ideas about pencils or the number one. Okay, the number one doesn't exist in some no. There's one pencil, and that's where we get the idea of number one. So I think, I think I'm an Aristotelian because I'm a Thomist, uh, so no, I'm, I'm not arguing yeah. with you. I agree with you. But I, I do think we have to be fair to Plato because when we talk about the idea, he's not about an abstract concept. He's not about, about the thing in the mind of God. In other words, the thing exists, you know, in essence, before it exists in, 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 in anything physical which we can sense. I think that's right. what he's saying. So, so the, the pencil... I mean, that's something which we make. It's not a good, absolutely not a good example. But you know, a tree, right, exists first of all in the mind of God, right, and it becomes manifest in the creation of God, which we can then experience through our senses. Right, but when when Platonism goes too far in this abstraction direction, then people do often get further and further removed from the real things themselves. And this is what they're both reacting against. I don't, I'm not interested in your idea of Christianity. I'm interested in if there is a Christianity worth being interested in. Nietzsche decides there is no Christianity being worth interest, worth being interested in. Kierkegaard is still interested in Christianity and is now, like you said, perfectly wandering around trying to find it. Nietzsche has said, forget about that. We're going to make up our own, we're going to make ourselves gods. So I, I I think we're talking on the same thing, and where we can with the same time, uh, you know, for us, what's real is what we experience with our senses, and then we come to as Plato did the realization that well, wait a minute, there's something even higher than that in the spiritual order, the ideas which are in the mind of God, we would now say, which is more real. But the problem with these philosophers would be that they take the idea for real. And what we experience is not really real. Well, it is real. This is real. We just have to say God is more than that. And here's an interesting quote related to this, which I think uh, helps uh, maintain our respect for Plato. Okay. On the bottom of 100, he says, um, Kierkegaard restores faith to its towering height, and he brings man back into genuine contact with God. Right, not the idea of God, God. Another feature of his superiority as artist, no less than as thinker, may be added his Socratism. If Nietzsche is the anti-Socrates, Kierkegaard is certainly the most Socratic of the moderns. So in Kierkegaard, we don't see this hostility, this hatred towards Socrates that we see in Nietzsche, even as he's trying to restore, look, we need to have a relationship with God, not an idea of God. So yeah, agreed. And thanks for pointing that out. That's, that's very good. Uh, I want to say, Doctor, in connection to what you've just said, and what Father just said before, I think that the key thing is that Aristotle's correcting in Plato uh, is that, as Father said, basically that the, the our experience through our senses is an experience of the real, the, the real, but it's the less real leads to the more real. All right. So that the, the tangible, physical leads to the metaphysical. It's not that there's a radical you know, abyss that separates them is the fact that our experience is meant to take us further up and further in to reality itself or reality himself. And the way God helps us to do that is by coming in 
exactly. to, to material reality in the incarnation and as we he see has to it, show us himself so we can go deeper right. and so and so uses material reality so we can touch him we can receive him physically in communion and so on and so it's interesting that at the end of this section we see kierkegaard being fascinated by the incarnation and that is precisely what is leading him toward the catholic church because this is the synthesis right here between how do you get beyond the, at the abstract? You have to be shown the concrete, right? That's right. And that's exactly what God did for us in the incarnation. So now, can I go to 103 now? Of course, sorry. <laughs> no, no, this has been a distraction. This is very important. Whether our listeners have turned off the, you know, push, <laughs> we don't blame you know, them. push the mute button or whatever, I don't know, but, <laughs> uh, or they turn off the sound. But, uh, uh, you know, we have this kind of procedure. We've done it from the very beginning of this book club that we will, you know, skip pages and take a sentence or two or comment on a couple of sentences. I think what we're doing is we find a sentence or two which not only strikes us, but which kind of encapsulates or summarizes or, you know, gives a sense of the total meaning of the chapter. So that I, I want to justify what we're doing here as a way where we're not just picking out the little cherries that we like. We're picking out those things which illustrate the, the, the meaning that the author is conveying in the particular chapter. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, so page 103. Now, this is a somewhat secondary point, but, but only partially. A middle of the page, just above there, talking about Kierkegaard. As he is the philosopher of transcendence, Kierkegaard is the theologian of objectivity, but he is at the same time the theologian of inwardness. That is to say, of personal appropriation is the idea of, not the idea, but the real thing. But what the Lubach says in the new paragraph there needs, needs a comment. To believe is neither to know nor to understand. Still less, of course, is it simply to profess a doctrine. Mystery is not a rational system. Faith is not a starting point for thought. Now, that's an ambiguous thing, because as Augustine famously said, theology is fides quaerens intellectum, faith seeking understanding. So in a certain sense, faith is a starting point for, for thought. But on page 104... But keep going. Okay, go ahead. To just finish that quote, belief is not speculative. The real individual is face to face with a real God. That is the quite simple truth that Kierkegaard is never weary of repeating. Right. And, and the idea here is that it's not that we can't seek to understand our faith as best we can. Right. But we don't replace faith by some kind of intellectual superstructure. Uh, and on page 104, uh, new paragraph. Uh, now, that is precisely the misfortune of our philosophers. They're not ignorant of Christianity, and it's not of their own wish they reject it. But according to them, even if they do not put it so crudely, faith is a refuge for weak minds, weak heads. They reduce it to the status of an initial impetus, a starting point for thought. They, quote, go beyond, unquote, the Christianity of the apostles. Not only they say do we believe in Christianity, but we can explain it. 
And then down a few lines, they meant without perceiving that for that very reason, reason it eludes them. And then a few lines down, they manfully set forth to solve the paradox to which the believer clings, not realizing that wisdom lies in seeing it more clearly as a paradox. Yes. And I, that, you know, Delubach has two books. One is called Paradoxes. And the other one is called More Paradoxes, in which the Lubach has little aphorisms which show the Chestertonian, if you will, paradoxical you know, feature of Christianity, which you can't fully explain. They, they, two truths which seem to be contradictory but really aren't lead you to something you can't fully grasp, but it's necessarily not it's true, nevertheless. And in this book club, we studied the Lubach's The Church Paradox and Mystery. We did. Which I forgot. <laughs> which is the same, covers the same theme. Well, we are, we are, we are, we are um, getting uh, towards the end of our time here. It might be good to wrap up. But I'm going, as, as Father was reckless enough to allow me to lead, I'm going to allow myself uh, the final concluding thought here uh which, which both of you can carry on irrespective if you want to but uh, first of all page 103 i, I mean i i my heart left you, you, you highlight exactly the same passage um and also but the only thing i the only thing i, I ringed the the, the the page 103 the new paragraph to believe is neither know nor to understand which you read don't, don't need to read it again and i agree with all that it's all wonderful it's all completely true except for the sub clause Faith is not a starting point for thought, um, because we do have to believe uh, in, for instance, the fact that we're looking at being uh, a reality and, and not merely a figment of our own subjective imagination before we can do anything. So, so that's the one thing about this. And, and then, Father, you said there's it's ambivalent. It's what does yeah. it mean? Um, and, and so you pointed that out, and I was grateful for that. And I think what we are meant to infer from this is a word, a missing word that I would like to supply. And I think in supplying the word, it will make that statement more true for you. And that is this. Faith is not simply a starting point for thought. Faith is more than a starting place for thought. Not that we don't think about our faith. Of course, we think about our faith. But that's not the purpose of faith, to be a starting place for thinking. You see what I mean? Yeah. I think that's what he means. If I may be so bold to well, suggest, I think it's important for us to point that out. Is yes, yes, that, that yes. On the one hand, faith is a starting point for thought. In that, once you believe, you want to understand it better. Yes, but it's not a starting point in the sense that we don't need to believe anymore. We yes. can try to explain it. Yes, and I think that's what Dulabak means. Yeah, perfectly put. It's a prerequisite, right. but it's well, not the answer. You almost got the last word, Joseph. So yes, let's. Uh, we're going to return, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, and any other. Categories there might be. I think those are the only two that are relevant. Uh, uh, next week to continue this chapter. God bless you. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.